Lord, one of these days we're going to sing of your love forever and ever. Lord, it's our heart and our desire to even now to walk in intimate fellowship with you. To, Lord, live on this earth as if we were before your throne in heaven. Lord, our actions would be reflected of that time when we will be in your presence forevermore, looking back. So, Father, I pray, as we go to your word right now, give us ears to hear. Lord, no matter where we are in life, you're a faithful God. No matter what we're going through right now, you're in control. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your sovereignty. And we thank you for your word. May you be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. We're beginning a new book this morning, or a new letter as it were. I'm going to take a little time to give us an overview, because context is important. Because if you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con, right? Amen? Amen. And so it's important that we understand who wrote the letter, who he was writing it to, what the circumstances were. So we're going to take a few moments to do that. And then because we're going to spend some time doing that, we'll probably only get through the first half of the chapter this morning. We'll just see how we do on time. But this morning we're going to begin the second letter to Paul's son in the faith. Not his son physically, but his son spiritually. As we're going to see, we'll see some things about Timothy in this morning's text. That he was a man that had grown up in a Christian home with a Christian mom and grandmother. And he met this man Paul when he came to Lystra where Paul had been stoned to death. And then Paul invested his life in Timothy, and then Timothy went out and planted a church in the city of Ephesus after being with Paul on part of his missionary journeys. Now, as Timothy was there, as we saw in the first book, he went through some great difficulty. He was surrounded by idolatry and sexual immorality and false teachers, and there was literally a point where Timothy, who was quite timid for a man in his position, and that should be an encouragement to all of us, we'll talk about that this morning, But God used him in a mighty way, but he also struggled sometimes with fear and discouragement and even wanted to quit the ministry potentially. But 1 Timothy, the whole theme of that first letter was found in 1 Timothy 3.15 where he says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and ground of truth. So the whole first letter was really practical on how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God. And these are great instructions for all of us. He talked about how they ought to have an emphasis on prayer. I want to encourage you. We need to be praying more. Amen? Amen. You want to see God move? Pray more. And you know what? Sometimes part of our prayer needs to just be silent. And let God speak to us as we pray. He talked about the role of women in the church. How the church ought to reflect Jesus and the character of the people and the content of the message. He talked about how to be a a good and growing ministry by preaching the Word and practicing the Word and growing in the Word. He talked about how God wants His people to be treated. How the pastors were to treat the people and how the people were to treat the pastors. He talked also in the last chapter that we looked at a few weeks ago. He gave us talked about how it was a glimpse of heaven. We saw a glimpse of heaven and that we ought to have an eternal perspective in the way that we do everything. And when we go to work on Monday morning, we need to go there with the heart to reflect God and do our work as unto the Lord and not unto men. He talked about how they were to handle God's Word, where they were to find contentment, not in the things of this world, but in the things of God. He talked about the battles they should fight and how they should handle their wealth and so on. So that first book is a great book and just filled with a lot of great application 
And you get to the next verse, you know, in your Bible, you just turn one page and there's 2 Timothy. But you know what? A lot has happened between those two pages. Paul has been released from prison. He has gone out and he has been in multiple cities. He's been in Macedonia and the island of Crete and he's been in southern Greece. And, and finally he gets to Troas and some years have gone by and he gets arrested again. But this time, he's not under house arrest like previously where he's chained up to a mission field, right? You know, he's got people chained to him and he says, all right, got a captive audience and he's going to preach to them. This time, they throw him in a cave. This time he's in a cold, dank, dark cave with only an opening at the top where they could drop food down to him. This time, it seems like his ministry has been taken away and the truth is he is about to face his death. He's going to die. He will never get out of prison again. So as Paul writes this letter, this is, there's a, a different urgency, a different passion on his heart as he writes to Timothy his last will and testament. In Acts chapter 20, Paul had spoken to the Ephesian elders, and when he spoke to them, the last words he gave them were, these are my last words to you. And so again, you pay extra attention. These are my last words. And then he said to these pastors in the first ever pastors conference, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You know what? Those last words make a lasting impression. And this is Paul's last will and testament to his son in the faith, Timothy. And we're going to see that there's some powerful things that he's going to communicate. And just quickly, by way of overview, to give us a little context, as he writes these last words, not only to Timothy, but to the body of believers. First of all, let me say again what was going on around him. Because not only was he in a cave, but the Christians were under persecution like never before. There was a man by the name of Caesar Nero who was in charge. You guys heard of him, right? Nero. A, some a type or a picture of the Antichrist. He, blamed, he, burned, he burned his own city to the ground and blamed it on the Christians. Just so that the people would be united in going after them. He was the one that you know, instituted feeding the Christians to wild animals, covering them in skins and having them fed to wild animals. He was also would take Christians and cover them in pitch or like a, like a tar-like substance while they were alive. He would stick them on poles and set them on fire to light up his garden and then ride through his garden with no clothes on, mocking God. This is the time that Paul is sitting in this cave. Now you can imagine from Paul's perspective as the Christians are being persecuted. And by the way, many of them, if not most of them, are choosing to walk away from God. Because if me walking with God means I'm going to be fed to a wild animal, if me walking with God means that I might be set on fire, not so much. You know, I love the get out of hell free card, but the set on fire on earth, not so much. You know, I'm not, I don't think I signed up for that program. And you know what? In persecution is where you find out who's really loving Jesus, amen? Because it's easy to love God when you're on the cruise ship to heaven and everything's perfect. But how do you respond in the midst of difficulty? And that's what this entire letter is all about. Now imagine the Apostle Paul as he's sitting in this cave. Where would Paul want to be when the persecution's going on? What do you think? On the front line. He wants to be at Nero's house having dinner with him. Don't you know that? He wants to be in his face telling him, Dude, you need to get right or you're going to get left. You need to come to know Christ. Turn or burn, fly or fry, pray or stay, what are you going to do, Nero, right? I mean, that would be the Apostle Paul, but yet he's in a cave. He's stuck in a cave. You can imagine how difficult that must have been for him. But you know what? This is a great example for all of us that when we might be physically limited, 
or have an inability to go to someone in person, God can still use us to minister to them and to minister to the Lord. Because you know what, near, you know what happens to Paul? He becomes a greater prayer warrior than ever before. He decides, okay, I'm in a cave, I can't go anywhere, but I can pray. I'm in a cave, I can't go anywhere, but you know what, I'm going to write this letter and trust that God's going to get it into Timothy's hands. And we know that God did, and now we're reading it today. So hopefully that gives us a little light on the circumstances of what was going on around them. And again, all these false accusations against Christians, they were hated by men. And again, all this persecution was causing people to fall away. And remember that Timothy is pastoring in the midst of it. So if the Christians are being persecuted, what do you think might be happening to the pastors and to the leaders? And you know, Timothy's been serving God for a while. The easiest thing to do would just be to go undercover. But he's going to be exhorted by his father in the faith who's sitting in a cave awaiting his own death. Don't hide your faith. Shine it brightly before men. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should not be ashamed. And we don't certainly live in days like they did. And just a few key verses I want to point out in 2 Timothy, and then we'll move on to the text itself. But just again, continuing to give you an an overview of how this book, this is such a great book. It's one of my favorites as a pastor to read again and again and again. Some of the key verses in 2 Timothy 2, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. You know what? If you're concerned about being set on fire tomorrow, you're probably not all that worried about redecorating your kitchen. Amen? When, you, when you're facing the potential of losing your life for the cause of Christ, the things of this world are not that big of a deal. And he tells them, don't be entangled in that stuff that's temporary. You know what? Live for that which is eternal. Live every day in the light of the fact that you might be in God's presence at any moment. And in Timothy's case, he could have been. He then tells him later, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, if you may be gone at any moment, you, we don't know, have the promise of tomorrow. When you get up in front of God's people, you better have studied His Word and know what you're sharing with them and teach them the whole thing. Don't water it down. And there's a temptation when persecution comes to water it down. Well, if I don't say, if I'm not so bold about things, maybe they'll leave me alone. And, you know, maybe if I don't speak out about, about the false gods of the Roman Empire, they'll leave me alone. Maybe if I don't talk about the sexual immorality of the idolatry, you know, maybe they'll leave me alone. But you know what he's telling them? You study to show yourself approved and you teach the whole counsel of God. He then in chapter 3 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word there for all is all. All scripture. Let me encourage you. It's a few weeks into January. You know, we started reading through the Bible together as a church. Let me encourage you to do that. Because you can't stand for all Scripture if you haven't read all Scripture. Amen? The Bible says we're to desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. And I know you're eating every day. Amen? So we ought to be in the Word every day. Amen? Desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. Then he says to Timothy, and again, in light of the circumstances, listen to what he says. Go hide, Timothy, and wait till the rough... No, that's not what he says. He says, 
Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He's telling him to speak with great boldness in the greatest time of persecution known to the Christian church. And he says, don't water it down, Timothy. You know, and it's so sad because so much of today, we're watering it down not in the face of persecution, but in the face of popularity. It's unpopular to speak it with boldness, so let's just water it down so we can be more popular. Guys, it's not about being popular with men, but being faithful to God. Because you know what? If we're faithful to God, we're going to raise up healthy, growing Christians who are going to be sold out for Him. And so it's so important that we preach the whole counsel of God, including the rebuke. He's telling Timothy to rebuke people for disobedience when all this stuff is going on. Someone could run and tell on him. You know, he rebuked me. I'm going to go tell Nero where he is. You know, I mean, but he said, don't you be faithful. Why? You know who's in control, guys? Not Nero, God. God is in control no matter what is going on around us. God is so faithful and we can trust him. And then Paul's own epitaph, his last words, really. And what a great description of himself in chapter 4. where He says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept my faith. Note again the clear connection between standing firm in the midst of great trials and remaining faithful amidst the faithless. That's what he's emphasizing and esteeming and studying and holding fast to the Word of God. These are the things that need to be happening in the time of great persecution, but they're the things that need to be happening in our lives today. Amen? Though this is written to pastors, every Christian, it ought to apply to us. When you go to work, when you go to school, when you're in your neighborhood, God wants to use you in a mighty way. God's word serves as an anchor in the midst of the world's storms. And you know what? It's the thing we can turn to. It's we need to turn to the word of God. It needs to be our anchor. Amen? It needs to be the standard for life. Not popularity with men again, but the word of God. You know, we live in a world where because we live in a democratic society, we think that because people vote for it, that if, if more people vote for it, it must be good. I disagree with that. Amen? Because you plus God is the majority. Did you know that? And if God says it, that's enough. And so the word of God, you know, I, I would never make it as a politician. Because I would say, you know what? All you senators are fired. We're going to go by the Bible. How about that? We're just going to study the word of God. We're not going to vote on anything anymore. What God says, that's it. Well, well, but we're a democratic society. We need to be a biblical society. Amen? We need to be honoring God above all else. That's what really matters. And so let's not be ashamed of the gospel. So now we get to to chapter 1. And I've titled the message, and again, we're only going to look at the first half of the chapter more than likely. But we talked about having, you know, a glimpse of heaven and how that transformed Paul. But I titled this message, Living a Life That Will Impact Eternity. Guys, the only thing that's going to matter, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And so what's, the only thing is we're going to take with us to heaven is people. And so our life ought to be lived to impact eternity. Not temporal comfort, but eternal glory ought to be the focus of our lives. Amen? Now I'm not saying, okay, go home and sleep on rocks and, you know, nobody have any shoes and crawl on glass every day to prove you don't need comfort. That's not what I'm saying. But you know what? Our pa- Amen. You're like, oh, I'm not, I wouldn't come back if you did. But here's the point. Here's the point. Seek first the kingdom of God, amen? And you know what? The things of this world are nothing compared to the eternal glory which is before us. The trials and difficulties of this life are nothing in comparison to what God has for us. And you know what? You're his children. You think God wants you crawling on glass? 
He loves you. You think how much you love your kids, multiply that a billion times, and that's how much God loves you. It starts to get a glimpse of how much God loves you. So this morning's text, we're going to see examples to follow and exhortations to heed, to live a life that will be fruitful now and have an impact on eternity. And again, let me give you the, I'll give you the whole thing because we're going to look at this the next two weeks. I'll give you all six points. We're going to look at three this morning and three next week. So living a life that will impact eternity, first, by being a man or a woman of prayer. You want to impact eternity? Pray. Intercede on behalf of others. Number two, by passing your faith on to the next generation. It's not enough that you be on fire for God, but giving that faith that you have away to your children. Making that a priority of your life. We'll talk about that. Thirdly, by stirring up the gift within you. God has gifted every one of us. Too often we're praying for more gifts when all we really need to do is stir up the ones we've got. Amen? And we'll talk about that. The next time we'll talk about not being ashamed of the testimony of our Lord being willing to share in his suffering for the gospel, and then holding fast to the pattern of, of the word. So, let's begin in living a life that will impact eternity by being a man or a woman of prayer, interceding for others. Let's begin in verse 1. Second Timothy. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, now you notice they always start off, you know, we write our name at the bottom of our letter. And in those days, they always wrote it at the top. Understand, these were written on scrolls. So if you've got a big scroll, the last thing you want to do is have to unravel that whole thing to find out who wrote to you. So they would always write at the very top. So Paul's letting Timothy know, Paul. Now understand this. Already, I think Timothy was going to be very excited when he sees this. Because remember the life that Timothy's going through right now. The trials that are going on around him. No doubt seeking direction. Again, going directly to the Lord, and that's the first place we all should go, but God will put those people in our lives who can give us godly wisdom and godly encouragement and godly instruction. And Paul is that man for Timothy. And then it says of Paul, and I love this, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, Paul and Timothy were great friends. Very close friends. He didn't say, Paul, you bro. He doesn't say that. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know what? Paul never stopped being in awe of the calling God had placed upon his life. He never took for granted or took lightly the fact that this letter he was writing were not his words or his opinions, but the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through his pen. And he wanted to make sure Timothy knew this is just not a personal letter from me to you. Though it is that, it's much more than that. It's Almighty God writing to you, to the church, and to Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz 2,000 years from now. This is the Word of God, not the opinion of man. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And again, it identifies himself as an apostle. Apostle in Greek means ambassador or messenger, one who has been sent out. And Paul was one, an apostle, and he's wearing that mantle as he writes this letter. And it's God's word as instruction to all men. Now look what it says there. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Who called Paul? God did. Again, this is not a popularity contest when it comes to calling. Too often people do that in the church today. They try to get enough people on their side and get enough support so somehow they'll be put in a position. Guys, if you get put in a position that way, it's not going to be pretty. It's not about voting 
It's about identifying what God's already done. When God has done it, we all know it. Amen? Nobody questions or doubts. Or go, Why did I do that? Everybody goes, oh, duh, I thought that was already the case. And here's the thing. Paul says that. I'm an apostle by the will of God, not the votes of men. Now, I pity people who try to appoint themselves and who try to do things in their own ability because it's going to be fruitless and frustrating both for you and the people you're trying to minister to. But know this, God has a calling on your life. And He has a calling on everybody's life. And we want to talk about that more. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, so we could say about each of us, Dave, a pastor by the will of God. You know, Kyle, a Sunday school teacher by the will of God. Omar, a worship leader by the, by the will of God. Your name, a supporter, an encourager, a prayer warrior by the will of God. God calls you to do it. God will sustain you in it. It will be a get to and it won't be a have to. Amen? How do you know you're called? You'll love doing it. Doesn't mean you won't be discouraged at times. Doesn't mean the enemy won't try to trip you up on occasion. But it will be a joy and a passion. You know what? I want every single person that does anything within this body to be called by the will of God and be doing it for His glory and for it to be a joy for them. I want it to be a joy if you're handing out the bulletins at the door. I want you to say, man, Lord, I get to do this, and it's a blessing, and I love to do it. And you're the first person to greet people, and they, you know what? And you get to show them the love of Jesus Christ, and you say, man, I get to do this, and I'm blessed to do it. And I believe that's the case, the people doing it right now. I don't want that to be the case with people that work in the kitchen, or the people that show up early to pray, or the people that do the set up the chairs, or whatever it might be, or working in the children's ministry. Man, can you imagine the church and the power that would be within a church where everybody was doing what God called them to do and none of them were doing what they, what they desired to do in their flesh or what men forced them into doing. Amen. You know, with that in mind, we always have needs in the children's ministry. But you know what? I don't want you to be out there unless you want to be out there. I want you, you know, go home and pray. Lord, because you know how, you know how important that is for someone to be caring for those precious children in a godly way? So that mom and dad who've been working hard all week and who've maybe been taking care of those precious little kids can come in and be fed by the word of God. And you know what? You ought to see that as, you know what, Lord? I'm doing this to bless somebody else. And at the same time, that God would give you a supernatural love for those kids and you wouldn't just be changing diapers, but you'd be praying for those children by name all week long that they'd come to know Christ. Do you think God could use somebody like that? And you know what? Every ministry, that's my heart. And that should be the the desire. And that's the will of God. That by the will of God, I'm doing this. Not the pressure of the pastor. Not the, you know, trying to find a place that I can be noticed. But Lord, you told me, so I'm going to do it because you want me to. And I get to do this and I can't believe it. And it's a great joy. And this is Paul, an apostle by the will of God. May we learn to be faithful into whatever God has called us to do. Then he says, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, where is he when he says this? He's in prison about to die. Doesn't this give a whole new meaning to these words? According to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul understood, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, as Job said. And he also understood that if you kill me, I'm just going to go to heaven. I've already seen it. It's pretty sweet, so bring it on. I'm here by the will of Christ. He's in control. Not you, not Caesar, nobody else. And you know what? I have the promise of life. Not just the life here and now, but the life that which is to come. And we're in verse 1, and Paul's already talking about heaven. 
Because this is a guy who was all about heaven. I've had people accuse me of, of saying going to heaven is being a platitude, like I'm trying to get myself excited or something. You know what? I mean it. Going to heaven. And I'm excited about it. And aren't you? Aren't you excited about it? Guys, when things are tough, get your eyes on where you're headed, on where home really is. You're not home yet. You're headed home. And Paul says, you know what? I have the promise of life that only comes in Christ Jesus. Notice that. It's the promise of life in Christ Jesus, not the promise of life in doing good works. Not the promise of life in being a good person or following after this false God. It's the promise of life that only comes from the giver of life, the creator of all things, Jesus Christ. If you know Him, you have the promise of life. If you don't know Him, you need to. You're dead and you're separated from Him right now, but you can be born again and alive in Christ before you walk out of this building. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Again, the source of his strength while he's sitting in this cave to write this letter is he knew where he was headed and he knew who was in control. There may be guards here. There may be a Caesar that wants to see me. But I'm indestructible until God's through with me. God's in control and I trust him. He's facing imminent death. He's enduring great persecution. But as we see here with Paul, Christians die well. Amen? Amen. We die well. Because we don't die. You've heard me say it, I'll say it again. We just move to a much better neighborhood, amen? We leave this rat trap behind and we get to go be in the presence of Almighty God. Notice again, and we're going to keep reading, but Paul is going to be praying for them and encouraging them and not once does he say, pray that I get out of here. He never says it one time. Now I have to admit, I would hope I could pray that. But I might be going, dude, where you guys been? You know where I'm at? I'm in a cave. Hook a brother up. Get down here. Didn't I lead you to Christ? Don't, don't you all part of yourself? Come on now. Get down here. Get up an army. What are you doing? He doesn't do that at all. God's in control. Let me encourage you in your faith. I mean, getting an encouraging letter from a guy about to face death. What do you think that meant to Timothy? What an incredible word. What a message coming from a mighty man of God. He was not worried about the punishment before him. He was not worried about the temporal things of this life. His focus was on the eternal. Not the potential loss of a soon life, but the promise of eternity with Almighty God. And again, it's in Christ. He's, our, he's where our rest is. He's where our hope is. He's where our promise is. The Bible says in John fourteen six that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. He's the life. He's it. So you want to have life? People say, what's the meaning of life? People are contemplating that. I can tell you right now, Jesus. He's the meaning of life. He's it. And intimate fellowship with Him is to understand what life is all about. Everything else flows out of that. Amen? Amen? And coming into such fellowship with Him that you can say, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, it's yours. You paid for it. It belongs to you. What you have for me is what's going to be best for me. So Lord, I'm following you with my whole heart. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. Show me where to go and I'll go. I was talking to Pastor Bill Holder. She was down in a missions conference and he shared with me a, a missionary who had been captured in Afghanistan and now is serving in Iraq. She's in her 20s. And she said that her prayer was this, Lord, whatever your question is, my answer is yes. Amen. You know what? That ought to be our prayer, amen? Lord, whatever you want, answer is yes. You, just get, you fill in the blank, I'm ready. You show me what you want. Here I am, Lord, send me. 
to Timothy, a beloved son. The word beloved there is part of the word agape. Beloved, esteemed, dear, favorite, worthy of love. These two had a great deal of godly love for one another. They'd been through a great deal together. And probably the person closest to Paul on the entire planet. And again, with all this love he has for him, he doesn't tell him, run for the hills and hide. He doesn't say, you know what, take care of yourself, Timothy, you've done enough. Instead, in the midst of this great love, he tells him the greatest thing he can tell him, which is stand up for the Lord. You love your kids? Don't tell them, take care of yourself. Tell them, stand up for the Lord. Amen? Don't tell them, oh, you got to get what's yours. You know, get, make sure you care for your life and get all the things you're going to need to have a healthy and happy life. The healthiest and happiest life you're ever going to have is walking with Jesus. Amen. And that's what we need to point, be pointing them to. And then he says this, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. You'll notice this throughout the Bible. These are greetings. Grace is keros, which is the Greek greeting. And what is grace? It's God giving you what you don't deserve. You've all heard it a hundred times, but I'll repeat it for the few who may not have. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. He paid the price, and you get the grace. Amen? He gives you the free gift. You didn't earn it. He gives it to you. But notice, throughout Scripture, grace and peace are always in this order because without grace, there can be no peace. Amen? You want to know peace? you got to know God's grace. You, got, you have to experience His grace. So peace is having that intimate fellowship. But the word there is shalom in Hebrew. So He gives him a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting, but in the middle He says the word mercy. And it's interesting in the Bible, grace and peace are used in every one of the letters the only time mercy is added is in the pastoral epistles, which tells me the pastors need more mercy than anybody else. I mean, he's telling a bro, mercy to you. God bless you, man. I know what you're going through, right? So grace, mercy, and peace, God not giving you what you do deserve. And the only time we see, and again, those words are knit together, and they're always in this order. So pastors do need mercy. Multitude of words, the Bible says, sin is not lacking. Who talks the most? Right? Be careful. The Bible says a pastor, it's a high calling, but he'll receive greater judgment. And he's telling young Timothy in the midst of this great difficulty that he was definitely in need of God's mercy. And, and then it says, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the grace and peace and mercy is irrelevant unless it comes from God. You can get grace from, you know, a block of wood and not going to do you any good. Mercy from a golden statue, not going to do you any good. But he tells them who the grace comes from. The Prince of Peace is the only one that can bring us peace. Amen? Amen. Now, verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. First thing he says is, I thank God. Where is he again? I know I'm repeating this. Where is he? He's in prison, about to die. It's cold, it's dark, and he's probably hungry. And he says, after his greeting, first three words, I thank God. How is that possible? It's only possible if you have an eternal perspective. Can you imagine if he was in that cave and didn't know God? Imagine the difficulties of life without God. But what a blessing to know that God is faithful and in control. 
He starts his letter with thanksgiving. Not one single word of complaint. And I and you can all learn from that. Amen. I've never been in a cave about to die starving and cold. Yet I've complained. How about you? And so, you know, man, the guy took my desk at work. And man, I got the lousy computer. And well, it's weak. Right? We murmur and complain about lesser things in life. And you know what? As Christians, we ought not to be complaining but glorifying the name of our Savior. You know what? Praise God. Whatever happens, God's in control. It's okay. It's all temporal. Let's live a life that's going to impact eternity. Live a life in light of eternity. And, and you know, we're going to see what he's thankful for in a moment. But he's thanking God in the midst of his difficulty. And what he's most thankful for, as we're going to see, is the genuine faith of Timothy in the midst of difficulty. You know, Paul had spent his life in service to the Lord. And it was a time when so many were walking away. And Paul, as we're going to see in a few verses, was thankful for Timothy's genuine faith in a time when so many were walking away from the faith out of fear of persecution. It's been said, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. It's easy to say you have faith until it gets put to the test. I believe, and then, oh, then do it. Oh, not, not so much. Then you don't believe. Peter, get out of the boat. He got out. He sank after a while, but at least he got out. Amen? He had faith enough to get out. And the point is, our faith is proven when we step out of the boat. Not when we say that we believe from a distance. And Paul, as we're going to see, is most excited about the fact that Timothy is remaining faithful. And as a man of God, that's the thing that grips his heart the most, is seeing people walking with God. And that ought to be the thing that blesses us the most, to see others walking with the Lord. The only thing that matters to Paul at the end of his life is others walking with God. It says, I thank God whom I serve. The word there is not only serve, but minister to and worship. I was talking to a pastor this week on the phone. And confidential conversation, so I won't share any more than that. But you know what, this guy's been in the ministry a long time, and he's just really discouraged. And we were talking about some other total issue, and he's not a Calvary guy, but he called me up and he just said, he was telling me he was just ready to quit. And I was encouraging him. He said, I just don't feel like I have it anymore. And I said, bro, let me tell you what you need to do. Fall in love with Jesus again. Re, you know, get intimate with Him again. Make Him the priority again. Because as we walk in intimate fellowship with Him, the natural outpouring of intimacy with Him is going to be ministering to the people around us. Amen? And where we grow dry is when we stop having intimate fellowship with Him. When we start letting the ministry get in the way of our relationship with God. And Paul's saying, look, I thank God whom I serve. The word serve again is minister to. The one I worship. The one I lay down my life for. And then he says, with a pure conscience. Now, Paul's been imprisoned falsely, hasn't he? But he's got a pure conscience because his conscience is not before men, but before God. But what an incredible picture of God's grace because remember Paul's life before he was Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. And he was attacking Christians. He held the coats while they stoned Stephen. And yet he can say, I thank my God whom I serve with a pure conscience. How is that possible? God's grace. Amen? He doesn't look and say, keep bringing up your past. The only one who brings up your past is the enemy. You've heard it said, next time he brings up your past, just remind him of his future. Amen? 
And so here's the whole point. The point is that he can stand with a pure conscience even though prior to salvation he was enemy number one of the Christian church. This ought to be an encouragement to all of us that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. We've been born again and filled with the Spirit of the living God. It's not who we used to be, but who we are now in Christ. And that's all that matters. We can stand with a pure conscience before Almighty God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? So Apostle Paul has a pure conscience before men, but more importantly, a pure conscience before God because God has cleansed him from all of his sin. Having been converted, having been forgiven, having been redeemed, though in prison, didn't see it as a result of his sin prior to salvation. The Bible, again, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we must never allow the enemy to bring us under condemnation about the things in our life. Guys, we can love serve, worship, and pray from a place of a pure conscience before God because of what He's done for us. It says, as my forefathers did. Speaking of the Old Testament saints who too had been faithful in the midst of difficulty and persecution. How about Daniel? He's speaking of the forefathers, the saints that went before him who in the midst of persecution could stand before God with a pure conscience and the first person I thought about was Daniel. Daniel was in the lion's den, thrown in there by men, but God said, lions, you can't eat him, right? Wasn't going to happen. God wasn't done with Daniel yet. We know that he's almost done with Paul. But in either case, we can have a pure conscience before God because it's our relationship with him that matters. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joseph. Paul just sees himself as one in a long line of those who God had called and a part of that calling in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation would mean that he would have to suffer for the cause of Christ and he equated it to being a joy and a calling and a gift from God and a privilege that he was allowed to do it for the Lord. So instead of us murmuring about the things we're missing out, guys, what are we missing out on being, by being Christians? Puking in the gutter on Sunday morning, right? I mean, what are we really missing out on? Broken marriages from adultery. Fried brain cells from all the drugs we've taken. You know, the things that God keeps us from he's, are the very things that will destroy us. Amen? Well, the pursuit of great wealth. And you know what? You'll get it all and you realize no joy there. No happiness there. The joy comes from knowing our Savior in an intimate way. He remained faithful. He was just one in a long line. He wasn't playing ain't it awful. Oh, poor me. I'm the first person. Ever. I'm the only one. Timothy, you're out there. Look where I am. How's that fair? Right? And we can do that. Lord, help us not to. Now notice what he says. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. You know what? It's an honor and a blessing to be on anybody's prayer list. Amen? When someone comes to me and says, I'm praying for you, there's nothing greater in the world they can do for me than that. Nothing greater anybody in the world can do for you than that. Imagine Timothy, remember again, Nero's out of control. Rome is burning. The, the persecution's heavy. And Paul writes, I'm praying for you, bro. Not, not only am I praying for you, but I'm praying for you night and day. And what enabled him to pray night and day? Being in prison. Right? Again, in the midst of great difficulty, he didn't moan or murmur or complain. He said, okay, Lord, you got me here for a reason. Let's use it for your glory. Maybe some of you have health issues right now. Hard for you to do the things you used to do. You can pray. Amen? Some of you may have lost a job or things are going difficult. And you know, 
What God, when God takes something away, He has something else He wants to put in its place. Paul is moving in his own personal time from being Paul the evangelist to being Paul the prayer warrior. Now he prayed before as he evangelized, and he's still trying to evangelize, I'm sure, the guy who dropped the bread down the hole. Dude! Right? I just imagine. But the point is that God had a different aspect for his life now. And we need not fight where God has taken us, but be faithful where he has taken us. Amen? And that's where the Apostle Paul is. He's interceding on his behalf. Paul knows about everything that was coming ahead of Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. Paul was an older one. He knew all the things that could disqualify him from ministry, the temptations, the trials, the persecution, the discouragement. Time when they couldn't afford to lose even one faithful servant and he was going to intercede on behalf of this man. The temptation for a pastor to water down the message to avoid persecution. And Paul's going to pray night and day that he would remain faithful and fight the good fight and not succumb to temptation. And how great of a blessing it is to know Someone who's been where you are is praying for you. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. So the first thing we need to do, if we're going to live a life that's going to impact eternity, is we need to be men and women of prayer. Amen? And no matter what your circumstances are, you can pray. Well, I drive a truck all day. Then pray all day in your truck. Now keep your eyes open. Those prayers still count. Amen? God will hear your prayer. You know, unable to be involved in ministry due to your current circumstances, you can still pray. And if I can encourage you, intercede for our missionaries. Pray for your lost family and friends. Pray for the ministries of this body. Pray for your local church. You know, join in the battle. God will bless it. And it's a great source of encouragement to those on the front lines where you can't be. Pray for our missionaries in India. Pray for Carrie in Africa. Pray, pray for, you know, the church out in New York that we're a sister church. Be praying for these people. We join in the battle when we pray. So number two, along with being a man or woman of prayer, by passing your faith on to the next generation. Look what it says. Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. The word greatly desiring, he longs for with a, with a great love, agape love between these two Christian brothers. Note also that as we walk in faithful obedience, there's not only outward persecution from the world, but inward temptation from the flesh and at the same time, difficulty of circumstances. These guys have a love for each other, but they're separated from each other as they're both walking in obedience to God. So sometimes we look at that and we think, oh man, that's, you know, that's a, a result of my bad actions. Or, no, sometimes our separation is what God has when we're both walking with the Lord, amen? You may have children on fire for God who are serving on the mission field half a world away. And so he's saying here, man, I so desire to see you. And sometimes, when we're both being obedient to God, we're separated from each other, but we're never separated from the Lord. Then he says, be mindful of your tears. In Greek, I'm reminded of your tears. Probable reference to the last time they saw each other, that as they were being pulled away, or as Paul was being taken away, that Timothy was weeping. But it's also a possible reference of Timothy being aware that Paul was about to die. Now, I want you to notice something, guys. Weeping is not unmanly. Amen? Weeping is not... We, if you'd never weep, it's a sign of a heart that may be a little bit too hard. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept when He went into Jerusalem because of the sinfulness of the city. Then He says, that I may be filled with joy. Paul, in, imprisoned, cold, facing death, intimates how, 
how just the sight of his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, would fill him with joy in the midst of the greatest difficulties. His greatest joy was not, get me out of here. It's just the thought of seeing his son in the faith one more time. This was an instance of hearty, sincere, and strong affection. Paul had a great love for his son in the faith. He, could not only, he would not only rejoice in seeing him again, but as we see here in the next verse, the ultimate joy was seeing the man that he had become. Look at verse 5. That I may be filled with joy. What would fill him with joy? When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. In a time when so many were following away, Timothy was standing up. And that brought greater joy to Paul's heart than anything the world had to offer. Was knowing that his son in the faith was walking with the Lord. Paul had seen a lot of flakes. He'd seen a lot of people walk away. He had seen the hypocrisy in the hearts of many of the leaders. And Timothy's genuine faith brought joy to his heart that his son in the faith, when so many were falling away, were walking with the Lord. Was walking with the Lord. 3 John 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says this. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I'm going to tell you that I am selfish when I pray because the top of my prayer list always is my wife and my four kids. I pray for you, but I pray for them more. I just do. And there's nothing I want more than to see my four children walking with Jesus. And you know what? That ought to be the heart of every dad, amen? The heart of every mom. I told my daughter just last night, I hugged her and told her how proud I was of her because she's walking with the Lord. Sorry. This is why she doesn't want me to do her wedding. (laughs) You'll never make it through it, Dad. You'll never make it through it. I know no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. Amen? Amen. Then it says there, the faith that was in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Notice that his godly heritage started in his childhood. He had a godly grandma and a godly mom who prayed for him. And it says in 2 Timothy 3, From childhood you have known the holy scriptures which you are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He knew scripture from childhood. Who, and you know what? His dad was not saved. So it was his grandma and his mom. So if you're here, parents, the most valuable things you can give your kids is not a nice house or a good a- education. Those things are fine. Or PlayStation 3, contrary to what they might tell you. Far more important is a godly heritage, amen? Far more important is raising your kids to love and know God. The richest children are those who have the knowledge of right and wrong through the foundation of God's Word and have seen it lived out in their parents. And what I want to encourage you with too, that his dad wasn't walking with God, so his mom stood up and taught him the truth, and so did his grandma. And so maybe you're living in a home where your husband doesn't know God. You teach your kids the truth. Amen? Amen. Do it with great boldness and do it with great love. And I pray that God would see, that your husband would see God in you and in your kids and want to come to know Him through you. Amen? Amen. 
So let me encourage you to do that. Moms and grandmas, what a great place. Now, I'm going to do two more verses. Because we, we are. That's just the way it is. I'm just stuck. I'm not going to stop. All right. So living a life that will impact eternity by being a man or woman of prayer, of passing your faith on to the next generation, giving them a godly heritage. And now the rest of the chapter, he gives them four charges. We're only going to look at one. Remember, this is Paul's last will and testament. These are good exhortations for Timothy, and they're good exhortations for you and I as well. And we're going to look at just one where he tells them to stir up the gift that is within you. Look what he says, last two verses. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you. The passage suggests that Timothy was a man who tended to be timid, a man who didn't like to confront people, a man of great love and warmth, but a love that might accommodate wrong rather than hurt someone's feelings. And as we saw in 1 Timothy, a man who was not only timid, but a man who was susceptible to fear. And Timothy's shepherd's heart for the sheep is great, but Paul wants to develop within him a boldness that he would need to protect the flock. Maybe you're here this morning and you're timid. Be encouraged that God can and will use you too. Amen? This is Timothy. And he's somewhat timid. timid, And he says, I remind you, stir up the gift of God which is in you. What Timothy could not do because of natural fear, the Lord could do through him with supernatural gifting. Amen? That's when you know it's really God when you can't do it. I just, I, I can't. I've prayed with people and I love it. Nothing gets me, a few things get me more excited than someone will say, I've never shared my faith before. We prayed together. They go out the next week and share their faith with 10 people at work. And you know why? Because they don't do it. They just let God do it through them. And he's saying of Timothy, you know what, Timothy? Stir up that gift. The word stir up there means stoke the fire or fan the flame. You know what? If you don't stir it up, it dies. Amen. You don't stir up a fire, you don't fan the flame, it dies out. You know what? We all have gifts in this room. Some of us have put them on the shelf. Some of us have set them aside. Some of us have allowed them to be extinguished. You know what? It's time to pour some lighter fluid on that thing and fan the flame and light it up again. Amen? Amen. Lord, light that fire again. Fan the flame in my life. Stir up the gift within me that I might be used for your kingdom. You know what? We don't retire from the kingdom of God. We get raptured or we die. That's it. That's the retirement plan. Amen? Amen. And until then, let's be busy and faithful serving Him. You know what? Again, as I said before, we don't necessarily need more gifts just to be faithful with the gift we have. The word gift there is charisma. And that's, he says, stir up that gift that is within you. Many have not stepped out due to fear. But you know what? Just say, Lord, pray that prayer like that young missionary woman lord whatever the question is the answer is yes lord stir up my gifts use me for your glory she says and then it says through the laying on of my hands again a picture of modern day ordination laying on of hands but the gift didn't come from paul's hands but came from the lord but he's reminding him of this public everybody had said publicly timothy we know god's calling is on your life don't forget it when you get discouraged, be, be reminded that we all agree together that we witness God's calling on your life. Stir it up. Don't put it out. Be faithful to it. A fire left to itself will always burn out. May we not allow that to happen. Last verse. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now we address Paul's problem, or Timothy's problem. The word fear there is cowardice. Paul sees the timidity of Timothy and knows the fear that he sometimes feels, and the Lord wants Timothy to know that the fear he experiences is not from God. 
The Holy Spirit does not make a coward out of us. Amen? When we walk away and we're afraid to do something, that's not God. That's us. And when we step through the fear and we show Holy Spirit boldness and we do it with great love and humility, that's not us, that's God. Amen? And that's exactly what he's encouraging him with. We all face situations where we feel timid and afraid. Some of us are afraid of confrontation, some of being made to look foolish, of speaking or praying in front of others, of being rejected, of failing, of the evil in the world, or of your family getting sick or being harmed. I had a woman that I called on years ago in Yellow Pages that was so afraid of her children being hurt that she would lay up in bed all night long just petrified and scared to death. She was a Christian woman. She didn't want her kids to come to the youth group because she was afraid something might happen to them. And I said, you know, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's the enemy, amen? Wanting you to keep your kids from being used by God and for His glory. The source of our fears is our personality, our own fleshly weakness, or the attack of the enemy. And the first step to, to overcoming such fear is to understand that God is in control. In any case, it's not from God, no matter what those fears come from. His Spirit never leads us through fear of circumstances, never leads us through fear of men, most often tells us to step out in fear. 365 times in the Bible it says, do not fear. I'm thinking we shouldn't fear. Amen? Spirit of God has not given us a spirit of fear, a spirit of worry, a spirit of anxiety. Then lastly, here are the last three things. But look what spirit He has given us. One of power, of love, and a sound mind. A spirit of power, the word is dunamis. Where we get dynamic or dynamite, explosive. Acts 1, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to serve God, and through Him we can overcome fear. Amen? Perfect love casts out all fears. We're going to talk about love, power, and love. It's that love that casts out the fear. It's the power of God that helps us overcome the fear and the anxiety of serving Him. It is futile for us to try to serve God without the power of the Holy Spirit. Many, I'm already over, so I'm just going to keep going. Now, many years ago, I went to a conference. This guy was 90. They had to push him up to the stage. It was awesome. And he'd been in the ministry like 70 years. And he's preaching on the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he told these jokes, and he could barely get them out because he had a hard time talking. But he, he, I remember two of them, so they must be decent. He said, I would rather walk through a dynamite factory with blowtorches in my hand than try to serve God without the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, I'd rather be taped to the ground in front of a steamroller being driven by a blind man than try to go out and serve God without the power of the Holy Spirit. And he told about 20 of these in a row. And he was trying to make the point, no Holy Spirit, not good. And if we don't have the Holy Spirit in us and with us and upon us and leading us, it's going to be fruitless. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, amen? Amen. He has given us the spirit of power. And He's also given us the spirit of love. Again, the word love is agape. Perfect love casts out all fear. A love for God and a love for others. You know what a coward is? Someone who's concerned for himself. His own preservation at any cost. You know what love is? Concern for others more than yourself. Uh, A passion for God greater than your own desires and your own will. That's the spirit He has given us. And then lastly, a sound mind. The word for sound mind in Greek is a calm, disciplined, and self-controlled mind in contrast to the panic and confusion that rushes in on us when we're afraid. A mind that is moved by the Word of God, not our emotions. Don't we need that? Instead of our emotions leading us, oh, being led by the Lord. Lord, it doesn't matter what's going on around me. God is in control. 
The Holy Spirit does not produce fear in our lives. Fear of circumstances, fear of men, fear that renders our gifting useless, but the power to witness with boldness, to step out in faith when we're afraid, to love and esteem others greater than ourselves, and to have a mind moved by God's Word, not the fear of man or our emotions. Again, Timothy had all the spiritual ingredients that, gift, that he needed for a gifting, but one thing Paul, Timothy needed to be encouraged in was to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to not to, to neglect the gifting that he already had, but to fan the flame. Isn't it interesting when the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the book of Acts, they had tongues of what? Fire upon them. The Holy Spirit stokes that fire of that gifting within us. Less of us and more of Him. So in conclusion, there is no doubt a word of exhortation for many of us here this morning. We have this brief window of time to impact the lost world for His kingdom. Let's not waste it bound up in fear. But Lord, help us to stir up the gifts that are within us. So living a life that will impact eternity by being a man or woman of prayer, intercede on behalf of others. By passing your faith on to the next generation and by stirring up the gifts that are within you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that this letter written 2,000 years ago by Paul to Timothy was really written by your Holy Spirit to every single one of us this morning. Father, I do pray you'd help us to be men and women of prayer. Lord, make your Father's house a house of prayer. Lord, may we pray more. May we intercede on behalf of each other. Father, I pray also that we'd be parents who would be handing our faith, giving our faith over to that next generation, giving our children a godly heritage. And then, Father, I pray and ask in Jesus' name that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would stir up the gifts within each and every one of us. Lord, if they're on the shelf, bring them down. If the fire's been extinguished, light the fire again in each one of our lives. And Lord, if there's people who've never used their gifts, light a a fresh fire in their hearts to serve you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We want our lives to count and impact eternity. Lord, we, we come before you with the prayer of that missionary. Lord, whatever the question is, the answer is yes. We say these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said... Let's stand and close the worship song. Mm-hmm.